Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by KMT Partners. I'm Andrew Montesi. I talk to John Peterson and Michael Parsons from Best Practice, a company that provides Fortune 500 level business education, coaching and mentoring programs tailored to small and medium-sized businesses. Best Practice founder John Peterson is a self-made serial entrepreneur who has been studying and teaching the craft of business for over 20 years. He has founded numerous companies working across Australia, Hong Kong and Singapore and consulted to many industries including accounting, advertising, IT, HR, legal and mining. Michael is a management consultant who has spent over 25 years helping Australasian businesses grow, focusing on people, process and performance. John and Michael discuss the biggest issues facing small business owners, succession planning, capital and cash flow, and the challenge of gaining further education while running a business. This podcast is brought to you by KMT Partners. KMT is a leading accounting and wealth management advisory firm in South Australia, assisting you to emerge, renew, grow and build resilience in business, themes which are central to this podcast series. For more information, visit kmtpartners.com.au. Enjoy the chat. John and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Nice to be here. To kick things off, um, for sole practitioners, small business owners, startup founders, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys have seen that are facing these type of people in business? I guess the most obvious is a naivety around what it actually takes to build a business. So um, we all start with grand ideals and hopes and dreams and ambitions and we think that I can make more money as the owner, I can be my own boss, I can um, have more time and freedom and possibly do it better than the person I've worked for or the people I've worked for before and therefore my skills mean I can start a business and it'll be and you know, and it will be my money, and uh, and profits are better than wages, uh, and yeah, you know, there's a, a genuine sense of contribution and, and doing something of value as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The real issue is, what are they getting into? Yeah. And what, what on that? I mean, what what are the points that kind of bring reality pretty quickly? I guess what we see is one or two years out is often a great time to start coaching or supporting a business owner because after a year or two, they're starting to respect how much harder the journey is to get the business up and running properly mm. uh, than they first thought. And perhaps recognise that, that maybe they do need some help. Yeah, it's really about the skills that they... They have the skills to technically do the job mm. that they're doing, but no one's taught them actually how to run a business, mm. what, to, what are the key things to look at, what are the key things to measure really, apart from, you know, the, the general things that businesses do measure, such mm. as turnover and profit, you know, really then looking at what are the other key levers that you can actually use in a business that make a big difference to those things, because they're really just outcomes at the end of the day. Mm. And then I guess to fast forward even further down the track is um, this issue of succession, which I think is quite interesting. So people get stuck into their business they might be a solo operator or they might have a few people working for them could be the family business is succession and thinking about the future of the business beyond them is that on the agenda for most businesses from what you guys see uh it's not on their agenda uh and not because they don't agree that it's important but it's fundamentally for two reasons it's the stigma 
that that people conjure up in their own mindset of of succession equals redundancy. So why do I want to get excited and about and start planning for my mm. own redundancy if I love mm. what I do, mm. right? And that's not what succession is about. Succession is about creating leverage uh, uh, beyond being self-employed to the point where the business works for you rather than you working for it. So you can work on your own terms if you master your own succession. Mm. And in theory, you're actually becoming more valuable by doing less work because you're building an organisation, you're building the structure, and you're possibly even diluting equity or profit share Mm. to a multi-generational offering of uh, other talent uh, that is then helping you take your business beyond where you could have taken it on your own. Mm. And, you know, Branson doesn't fly his own planes, you know. Buffett doesn't run the companies. He actually works out which companies to invest Mm. in. Yeah, it's a big point because I would imagine particularly with, you know, your, your solo operators and so forth, the business becomes about them and they can only earn as much as the hours that they put in. So there's, there's that ceiling. Yeah, very much so. And if they're, if they're looking at, you know, we, we came across a, yeah, a business owner the other day and he was adamant that nobody does the job as well as he does the job. And, but for him, but he's, he's also recognised that, but then it's only going to be as big as it can be with him doing the job. So mm-hmm. he's then got to change his mindset and then start to actually develop people under him that can do the job and let go of the, let go of the control of it to actually other people so he can then start to run the business rather than working in it. What are some of the other, I mean, you've touched on a couple of them, but what are some of the other barriers that prevent people from taking steps to, to set up a true plan? Well, I guess the, the most logical or common sense issue is that uh, nobody's being mentored on how to actually plan. Mm. So the concept of a business plan could be a, a napkin in a cafe. Uh, it could be a highly complex, you know, 40-page uh, technical document that is based on a template that's been downloaded. But are they, uh, is a business owner getting world-class or is the startup getting world-class business planning, guidance and mentorship on how to do that? Mm. And if they're not, well, then they're flying blind anyway and, and they'll do what they think is right. Okay, so most, I mean, most people would say, well, I don't know where to start, but is that just it? Find the right person to, to support you in that? It's got, that's got a lot to do with it and because otherwise near enough will be good enough or a concept in their head will be enough to get started. So it's highly motivating uh, and exciting and th- the thrill of you know, blue-skying an, an, an idea and getting started in a business. And a lot of people will run for up to, say, two or three years just on the energy and the thrill of that concept and whilst they're doing that they're racking up an ATO obligation that they haven't been able to pay through their own cash flow um, they're they're learning really hard lessons along the way and two or three years down the track they're often saying gee um, and even ten years down the track we, we see that a lot of businesses are basically still trading on the cash flow cliff edge and they really don't have a structure and it's really a self-employed environment where the business owner works for the business the business doesn't work for the business owner and they're slaving away to get paid. Is, you know, mergers, acquisitions, is that on the agenda more so in, in recent years or um, kind of where's that? It seems to be that maybe it's kind of the startup thing and we, we hear about it more often, but is that a, a realistic option for, for a lot of businesses these days? Well, <coughs> <coughs> it's... It's not, an, it's not an unrealistic option. Uh, what we hear about are the, the shooting stars. Mm. So it's like winning a lottery ticket 
and yet it's presented in Startup Smart and, and other uh, online media uh, publications as if these things are really happening all the time. Mm. And they are, but they're happening all the time based on some serious momentum over mm. maybe you know two to six years that's been built and the organisation really has got something very special in terms of what it's developed, what it's offering, you know, its value mm. proposition. And so it, um, mergers and acquisitions make more sense when culturally you can create a cultural alignment between the, the parties or the, the, you know, the business mm. owners involved. Now, that's not always easy if that's done on their own. It's often quite disastrous. Mm. So it's something that we promote and, and, and encourage, but on the basis of a very structured uh, honeymoon period and, and, and evolutionary sort of relationship that's developing mm. and unfolding. Mm. I guess the step before that um, is even getting your business into a position where you can sell or at least look at options. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, I think a lot of the advice that we give to business owners is even if they're planning on that or not, is to actually start to treat their mm. business as if they would be doing that. So what are the things that you would change in your business to actually make it more attractive to a potential merger or an acquisition? What are the things that you need to do to actually set up your business so it's scalable, so it's more structured, mm. so it's got everything in place? And when you see businesses actually do that, they become a lot more valuable. Yeah. And therefore, but you know, also on the flip side, we really also encourage business owners to actually look at, well, do you really want to sell it or do you actually want to have an investment that keeps working for you and you're not working in the business anymore so it's actually providing you some, some recurring revenue mm. without you actually necessarily having to be in it? It's a, it's a really I think, good and interesting point about preparing to sell even if you're not actually intending to. I mean, I just think about a lot of the small business owners that I know and um, they would love to have that as an option but they're just not even close. You know, a lot of them aren't even using um, decent CRMs or they don't even have a decent mm. database. Where where do you start with that as a project? Um, you know, I might have a, a business that's turning over pretty good dollars. I've got a comfortable living, but I want to start thinking about the potential of selling. Where do I start with actually getting getting myself set up? Well, it's going to be very easy to sell your business if it doesn't have a value, right? So in other words, the emotional value and the emotional price tag business owners will put on their business is based upon their passion for what they do and perhaps the tenure of how long they've been doing that for, rather than the metrics that lead to a financial yield that justifies selling it in the first place. So if, if, if you're really self-employed, what are you selling? If the painter is walking away and handing over the paintbrushes and the rollers, what's the value of the business? Mm. If the painter doesn't do any of the painting, on the other hand, and they're selling a world-class team of diligent, professional painters that are producing a $300,000 a year gross profit pre-tax after drawings and earnings, including the, the founder's salary, then that's a valuable business. Mm. You know, that might be worth a million bucks. Mm. So how else can business owners add value by doing things like that, perhaps looking at systems and technology and automation and scalability? Yeah, it really comes down to then having a look at where the, the direction of the business. So a lot, of, a lot of what we find is a lot of business owners, as John said before, they start with the, you know, the passion of what they want to do, but they really have no plan or direction of where they're where they want to head in five years' time, in mm. ten years' time, where they want it to be. So therefore they're not setting up the business to be scalable and systemised. 
So really, it then comes back to you know to then setting well, what 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 are your goals? What are your aspirations for the business? What does it look like? What does it structurally need to look like to actually achieve that particular end game that you're looking at in five to seven to ten years time? What's the plan, the the 90-day plan, the one-year plan, the three-year plan to get to those milestones? Mm. And then absolutely building it. So you're really looking with the end in mind rather than actually going from day to day. Mm. So you're building the plan from the, from the end and then going, okay, what do I need Breaking to do back. to actually achieve those things? So it's then putting that, you know, this, you see a lot of businesses that don't have any systemization in their in, in their in their business. You know, I was talking to a client today who's aged debtors. Uh, you know, they've got a, a million bucks in aged debtors and 600,000 of that is actually sitting in, you know, it's in 120 days. That's ludicrous. That's outrageous. You know, so w- my question was, what system do you have in place? Oh, we've got a system. Well, it clearly isn't working. <laughs> so, you know, it really it then is unravelling what are the things that you need to do to actually make your business more efficient, to, to make it more scalable, and so that it is attractive to other people. Mm. Yeah, I don't think a buyer's going to be too happy to see all those debtors sitting there. <laughs> Um, the other massive challenge is um, capital raising and funding for businesses. Again, you look at the headlines, you see startups raising extraordinary amounts. Um, I'd imagine there'd be a few small business owners looking at that and thinking, geez, you know, maybe, maybe this is the direction I should head. Um, funding and cash flow is always a massive pain point, and I would imagine there's a number of ways to, to look at it. I mean, where, where do you start in that regard? Well... It also comes down to being realistic about how your business might be categorised in the eyes of the investor market. So um, without a doubt, the hottest space uh, right now, be it Australia or worldwide, is a terminology called fintech. So fintech is essentially the convergence between uh, smart apps that you'll see online on smartphones and so forth and financial services such as bookkeeping, internet banking, uh, cash transactions, uh, payment systems and gateways and so forth. So Mm. you combine the two and you've got the hottest uh, um, industry sector and and investment vehicle, if you like, as as a vertical market. Mm. (coughs) So a fintech proposition that is deemed by the uh, venture capital market to have a really exciting proposition will still uh, achieve a dot-com boom you know, year 2000, 1998 to 2000 sort of concept, they might get a, a 30 times current earnings uh, valuation and raise some serious capital uh, because, it, because that market is, uh, is betting on um, the potential and, mm. and the investor will in, literally most often be a portfolio fund or spread and so they're risking over 30 different fintech investments knowing that one might be a shooting star and, and 29 might fail, right? Mm. So that's a, an interesting market. So what if we're not in a hot space in terms mm. of the investor appetite? So we've got to be a bit realistic in that regard. And if we're not building uh, some sort of um, systemized uh, cloud application as proprietary uh, software, then our business will be less valuable, no matter whether we're making money or not. So... Mm. Um, Traditional businesses can still achieve great yields and, and, and become really valuable and can attract investor interest. They will do so even more if the business owners have been thinking about and developing proprietary systemized applications that that streamline efficiencies and software and processes and, and debtors and all sorts of things. Mm. Uh, so, you know, how systemized, how systemized is that business? 
and have you created some proprietary uh, software, for example? So uh, some of the really great entrepreneurial statements you'll hear out in the market are things like, today, everyone is in the software industry, whether you like it or not. Mm. So you're either not doing something about it, and you therefore have no um, value in mm. that application of re- re-engineering, scaling, and automating your business and systemizing what you can, or you do, and you're going to lend yourself to more investor interest. Mm. Okay, so what if I'm running a business that isn't in one of these hot sectors? I'm not really going to be um, able to put my hand up for some serious investor funding, but I do feel like that I've hit a bit of a ceiling in terms of growth um, given the lack of cash I might have. What are some of the things I should be thinking about? (coughs) A great example is certain industry sectors achieve more bank uh, traditional finance support than others. Okay, so uh, just about anyone can walk out tomorrow, write a reasonable business plan uh, through a templated system and achieve in less than 21 days somewhere between thirty dollars and $55,000 from the Commonwealth Bank or ANZ for an unsecured business loan to start a cafe. Now, who would have thought mm. that was on the bank's agenda, mm. right? Now, interestingly, our opinion, having um, uh, some, uh, you know, providing some support to the cafe industry uh, on a national level, um, we recommend that it's not less than seventy thousand dollars in in capital funding to successfully launch a cafe. So the bank will loan you between thirty and fifty, pretty happily, mm. but you probably need seventy to a hundred, realistically. So. Um, so just because oh wow I can start my business and I'll get into the cafe industry yeah be very careful about the commercial rent the viability of that the serviceability of that relative to the income you can mm-hmm. yield and uh, the, the proposition that some capital might res- you know you, you might be able to get some debt funding so there's one example mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more government grants out there today than there's ever been before mm-hmm. um, and so understanding that and taking the time to to really be an avid student around what funding might I be able to access isn't a bad move. There's a lot of state funding as well as um, you know, uh, national funding or federal funding from time to time as well. Well, speaking of you know, being a student and wanting to learn, there's so much information out there these days, um, a lot of good information, a lot of terrible information. Uh, for someone who owns a business and listening to this and thinking, geez, there's so much I don't know, where, where does a business owner start when it comes to actually educating themselves about these things? That's a, that's a really good question. And it's, and it's probably one of the things that, that we find most interesting when we're, we're, we're talking to business because there's, a, there's not a lot out there that's actually helping business owners become better businesses. There's a lot out there in, you know, in particular skill sets within an, in an industry. But when you go and do an accounting degree, really, what are they actually teaching you about how to master your business, how to, you know, how to really become good, good at running a business? And, and marketing is one of those things that as, the, as digital marketing grows and grows, it, it's becoming more fragmented mm. and, it's, and it's, it's really becoming more difficult. To then, as compared to the old traditional days of, of marketing, you know, in the fifties and sixties, when really there were traditional media that you could use from an advertising point mm. of view, and ways to actually get your message around, it's re- there's so many different ways to do it. So it's then becoming 
where do I, you know, how do I learn to become better at that? But, mm. but it's also an understanding. I don't need to be an expert in that. I need to actually get really good people mm. into my business around me or work with work with people such as that, you know, where, and that's where I suppose we step in from a, as an organisation in helping business owners become better business owners. Mm. So providing them with the education, that's really what best practice is all about, to give them an education that really traditionally has only been accessible to corporates with deep pockets and plenty mm. of money. To then actually bring that to the small business community, and we and you know what we're doing is actually driving that out into regions around Australia to actually as as, as a small business movement. We've spoken on this um, new podcast a few times about the tension that exists between learning by doing in business and education, because there is this side which will say, "Well, no, you just got to get out there. You got to start. You got to fail, and you got to learn." Where where does it, that sit with you guys in terms of that that tension? <clears throat> you do have to learn and you do have to respect or, or come to realise that you don't know what you don't know because there's so much more mm. than people do know uh, because their skill set will earn them a living. It won't build them a fortune or build them a successful business. It'll get them paid. So the transition is is fundamentally significant. It, it's not any one light bulb insight. That said, people don't have to fail their way to success anywhere near as much as the entrepreneurial spirit and and a dialogue might suggest. Yeah. Mm. In fact, uh, one of the reasons, one of the real motives for writing my book was to literally put myself on the proverbial cross and demonstrate how many ways I got it wrong, mm. so that people could read that in advance and literally avoid making those mistakes. Yeah. Mm. And so. Understanding as much about what not to do as 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 what to do is really pretty exciting if you if you get your head around it because you can cut years of mistakes and wrong turns off the timeline to success. Mm. You guys have worked with stacks of business leaders and business owners. What are some of the key attributes of the people that do it really well and have success? A great example is something I recall from a book called The Richest Man in Babylon who has um, uh, a concept of handing over the management of his fortune that he has amassed over his entire lifetime and to have someone continue on much younger uh, as a legacy. And he clearly has the philosophy down and and the business mastery code down, albeit in the time of the Babylonians. And his loyal uh, students that are excited about this include one that is his son and and his son eventually doesn't get the gig. And bewildered, both um, the successor and his son, bewildered, are asking why this has occurred. And it was quite simple, fundamentally, that only one of um, the three on on trial, if you like, for the opportunity, um, played with a small amount of money as if it was a large amount of money from the start. So in other words, they had the disciplines, they did the things that a business master does. Mm-hmm. So rather than say, well, when I turn over $20 million, then I'll really need some corporate governance, and then I'll really need some good accounting, then I'll really you know, need some serious advisors, advisors on my board. Well, no, that's how you get to $20 million. Mm. Yeah? Mm. So the attributes are, are and, and we, we talk a lot about those, uh, are 
transformationally different and yet they're a recipe and a formula and, and, and it's like the law of cause and effect. If you do the things that self-employed people do, you will remain self-employed for the rest of your life. If you do the things that business masters do, you will eventually arrive at a position far more substantial in the structure and the performance and the, the, RO, the return on your own time and investment than a self-employed person would achieve mm. because you're evolving into a business master. Even if you start and do those things poorly, you can become quite proficient in those over time and eventually master them. Mm. And, and probably two of, the, two of the key attributes of, of a business master is one, their personal philosophy, and secondly, their unlimited self-belief. So what stops business owners is their glass ceiling that they have in themselves. You know, I don't believe I can actually do that. I can't get to that point. I don't have the skills. You know, mm. it's that internal dialogue. So, and, and Jobs, you know, Jobs had a, had a great quote where he said, the people that, the, 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 no, sorry, the people that are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones that do. Mm. Yeah? So it's, you see that in people like Branson and like Jobs, you know, where they just have this unlimited self-belief and they just take it on. Mm, absolutely. So I guess off the back of that, um, what was the motivation for starting best practice at the time when you turn back the clock and look back? I guess I realised that I had done it so poorly and yet historically on behalf of Fortune 500 companies and Top 100 Australian companies, I, I sort of arrived at a young age as being a top management consultant and, and achieved amazing results for these you know, mega organisations, and then uh, discovered that conceptually all of that was applicable, but it had to be applied in a small business environment with an, an enormous amount of patience and discipline. So you know, it's like the, the art of training to be an ultra marathon runner hmm. um, and know that you might not even be competitive for three years. And so make a start and start running six hours a day, three days a week, uh, and in three years' time you might get to a, you know, some sort of a world-timing competitive sort of uh, level. You know? And that's the, the dichotomy for a business owner is to they can get paid or they can take themselves seriously. Mm. So the self-belief and the philosophy and the mindset of committing to lifelong learning as in the study of mastering the business rather than the study of just getting paid. Mm. Yeah? So as we uh, wind up the chat, um, I might ask you both for one tip that you would give a business owner who wants to take themselves to the next level and you're only allowed one tip. Keep learning. And never give up. Because giving up on the learning will literally lead you to stagnation or failure and, and, and you'll eventually tire of, of your enthusiasm for the arduous journey of being in Groundhog Day. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, John and Michael, thanks so much for um, sharing your insights. We um, covered a fair bit of territory at surface level. Um, hopefully we can get you back another time and dig a bit deeper. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to our interview. For more information about best practice, visit bestpracticeprogram.com.au. Ahead of the Game brings you business stories that will inspire and help you grow. Please subscribe to our show and to find out more, visit kmtpartners.com.au. At our website, you can also find out more about KMT's accounting and wealth advisory services. 
which support individuals, their family, and their businesses with accounting, business, management, growth, compliance, and advisory services. Get in touch at kmtpartners.com.au.